Our, our theme this year has been that of being called. We're called to a purpose. And one of the great purposes that you see stated repeatedly throughout the New Testament is this idea of standing, endure, hold fast, don't let go. A theme that is resounding in nearly every turn of Scriptures calling for us to continue in the faith. One of the best books that describes that call is the book of Hebrews. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of the books and the scriptures that I think that we have uh, had the tendency to misread. I, I know I have misread a lot of them. I believe uh, the book of Hebrews is certainly one of those books. The, the introduction in the Bible that I'm using this morning, the very first sentence says, this letter to the Hebrews went to Christians in danger of slipping back into Judaism because of persecution. And if you've thought that the book of Hebrews was about that, you probably didn't really want to read it because you go, well, I'm not in danger of going back to Judaism, so what's really the point and usefulness of this book? And that is not what the book of Hebrews is about. Uh, It is pretty interesting that that is a pretty common thing that study Bibles and notes and and, and things like that. But most scholars completely disagree with that idea that this book has anything to do with Jewish Christians wanting to go back to Judaism. When you read through the book of Hebrews, there's absolutely nothing in the book that says that. There's nowhere in there where it says, and we want to make sure that you don't go back to Judaism, make sure you don't go back to those old paths and old ways or the things that you grew up with or things like that. There's nothing in the book that gives any of that indication. So where did that idea come from? Why do so many books, and even my Bible right here, say that? And what is often observed is that the error comes from the idea of mirror reading. The idea of mirror reading is this, is that if the author talks about something, that means the recipients must have had that problem. And there's a lot of sermons that I give you about things that you don't have a problem with. (laughs) I just am going through text. It's because a sermon is on anger doesn't mean, oh, everybody at that church must have an anger problem. And so we need to read it that way. There's no reason for us to read the book of Hebrews with the lens that says, because it talks about things in the Old Testament and the Old Testament systems and sacrifices and things like that, that must of necessity mean they were wanting to go back and do those kinds of things. There's nothing that the writer of Hebrews says along those lines. Well, the the false narrative in regards to that is this idea that Judaism and Christianity in the Jewish mind were these two completely separate religions. Uh, That is an import of 21st century thinking. We look back at it and go, well, here we are, there's Christians and there's Jews, and they were making this radical leap from Judaism to Christianity. And again, there's nothing in the New Testament that gives that kind of picture. Jewish Christians recognize that Christianity was the fulfillment of all that the law was talking about. There was no sudden break from the old ways and old system and law of Moses. They recognized that everything that was written from Genesis to Malachi was all about Jesus and all that they were waiting for. That's why they became Christians. It's because they understood that very idea. It is even a misreading of Galatians 
and Romans and such books to think, or even Acts 15 to think that, well, uh, they were trying to go back to Judaism. And that's not what the issue was. Those Jewish Christians were not saying, let's go back to the old system. What they were saying was, we believe that circumcision and these other markers are included in this fulfillment of the law of Moses into Christ. It wasn't putting Christianity away and going back to the law of Moses, but bringing things along with them into Christianity because they believed they belonged. And that's why Galatians and Acts 15 and those things are written in that light. So I think it's important for us to look at the book of Hebrews in more of a proper lens of the things that that, that are going on. That we wouldn't just simply read the book and go, well, because the writer of Hebrews speaks so much about the law of Moses and its sacrifices and rituals, that ultimately that's what the problem is. I have been finding with greater joy, and you've seen in a lot of the studies that we've done, to be able to find the purpose of a book is just so enlightening and exciting to have that proper lens. I I think that's why Exodus and Numbers has been so enjoyable, is when we get the right lens placed on it, that Exodus is not just, well, here's the story of Israel, but no, here's this picture of redemption and how God saves. It it brings life to these books, and Hebrews is the same thing. Uh, I want you to look in, in, in your Bibles right at the very ends. Often in the New Testament... You will either have the purpose statement stated very early on, right after the Thanksgiving section, or at the very end of the book where the writer will say, well, here's why I wrote all of that. Well, the writer of Hebrews does likewise at the very end in chapter 13 and verse 22, when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, he says, to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to bear with my word of exhortation. I'm giving you a message of encouragement. I'm giving you a message of exhorting. I'm trying to build you up. That's what I've done as I've written to you briefly in this, is I am trying to encourage you in that. In fact, that phrase, word of encouragement, isn't just simply, oh, I'm trying to encourage you, but is in many ways a formal declaration of this is a sermon to encourage you. Over in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, you might remember as Paul comes into the synagogue and the the law and the prophets are read and they say to Paul, do you have a word of encouragement? And he stands up and preaches, is what he turns around and does. The word of encouragement is a message that is built upon the word of God. And so that's what you are seeing in the book of Hebrews. When you look at those first couple of verses that was read for us, you might have noticed there's no author, there's no recipients, there's no greeting, thanksgiving, any of those kinds of things. In fact, it's driven everybody mad. Who wrote this and who is it written to? Nobody knows. And if anybody tells you that they know, they're lying. They don't know. We don't know who wrote it. And we don't know who received it. We have no idea who got this. Because it starts out as a sermon. In fact, it's only at the very end where you get any kind of inkling that this was given and uh, dispersed and copied among other groups because it says, I want you to greet these various people in the final couple sentences. The whole book is a sermon. He's preaching at them. 
And he's preaching at him encouragement. A word of exhortation. He's trying to lift them up. With that in mind, you probably know what the theme of this book is. If I were to ask you, what do you think of it? What is the theme of Hebrews? What is Hebrews all about? You'd probably say Jesus is better. That's kind of the standard, Jesus is better. And that is absolutely what you see in this book. It's constantly this repetition of better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all of these things. But I want you to consider that that is an insufficient declaration about this book. Why is the writer of Hebrews telling us that Jesus is better? It's not just simply, well, the canon needs some kind of thing about how great Jesus is. Well, most of the books of the New Testament tell us about how great Jesus is. There's a lot in it that speaks to the superiority of Christ. Nearly every letter either touches on it or it's a focal point of what is being written. What becomes really interesting to look at in the book of Hebrews, things that you've probably observed when you've read it and studied it, are all these warning sections that jump out. That as he's going about talking and encouraging them about how Jesus is better, how great Jesus is, he'll then turn around and say things like, now don't drift away. And then he'll tell them some more about how great Jesus is. And then he'll turn around and say, now make sure you don't have an unbelieving heart and hold on to your confidence to the end. And then he'll tell you some more about how great Jesus is. And then say, now make sure you don't fall away or have a dull ear. And then he'll tell them some more about how great Jesus is. And then he'll come back around and say, now you know we can't keep on sinning. You know we can't go down that road. And then tell them some more about how great Jesus is. And then warn them about not failing to fall or obtain the grace of God. What the writer of Hebrews is laying out is that this is a book encouraging these Christians to not fall away. Stand strong. Don't give up. Endure. And as much as we see that message stated in many of the New Testament letters, this is a whole book that its sole purpose is to write to these Christians and tell them, don't quit. You don't want to give up. And what's the reason why you don't want to give up? Because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is better than anything there is in life. Anything that you can find, anything that you can think of, anything that you can consider, Jesus is better than that. That's what the point of this book is about. Now let's consider what their situation is to see if we can come into contact with these Christians who are receiving this sermon that is being dispersed. When we read through the book of Hebrews, you'll notice that it is an interesting situation. You might think by reading, don't give up, don't lose heart, don't quit. Well, maybe they're being persecuted and being killed for the cause of Christ. And that's why he needs to tell them, don't give up. But you'll read in chapter 12 and verse 4 where he says that's actually not happening. You might remember the phrase, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. They're not dying. That's not their issue. But they are being persecuted. They are suffering. But it's not that it's death. 
but they're experiencing this humiliation and rejection from their society. But if you read with me over in chapter 10 and verse 32 and notice what he says about them. Hebrews 10 verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. Notice the picture that's being given. You're not dying for the cause of Christ, but you are a group of Christians who are suffering. You are being rejected. You are, notice the first word, you are insulted for being a Christian. You're being slandered. You're being looked upon as different. You are not enjoying the favor of your society and your culture anymore. Instead, you're now an outcast. Some of you have been thrown in prison. And some of you have lost property. Some of you are suffering loss. And some of you are just going through the difficulty of insult and the difficulty of, of words being said to you that are crippling to your life. It's an interesting situation that he writes to. That it's not to the worst But things are not easy for them either. They're somewhere in the middle. And different people were experiencing a different degree of rejection. A different degree of being an outcast. That their society no longer accepted them. And what the writer of Hebrews then wants to underscore when we study through this book is that the solution to the crisis of faith is to have a better, deeper, more substantial view of who Jesus is. That's why this book is written the way it is. For us to be able to go through the crisis of faith and deal with rejection, where people, neighbors, culture, society, look at you as a Christian and say, I don't get it, I don't like it, I don't accept it. What the writer of Hebrews says we need is a deeper, more substantial view of who Jesus is and why He's worth everything in this life. That's then what this book is about, is trying to give these Christians knowledge that would produce endurance. And in thinking about that, I suppose that it's a little bit easier for us to come in contact with this book. Because what Christian has not been discouraged at some point in their walk with God? And in particular to the point of this book, who has not been discouraged because you've received some kind of mistreatment or insult or rejection because of your faith, because of what you believe, because of your desire to serve God. This is God's book to deal with that discouragement. This is God's book of how to deal with that rejection. That is that the lens that I think is required to understand this book, that it's not about, okay, don't go back to Judaism. That's not the issue for these poor Christians. 
These Christians are suffering. And what the writer wants to do is show you how vastly superior Jesus is to every aspect of life that you could possibly imagine. That brings us to the beginning of the book. So let's take on the first couple of verses that we see in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a Son. What a great opening that you have for the the book of Hebrews where it just gets right to the point. Here is your sermon that just gets going right out of the gate. And that's what the writer of Hebrews does. Is I want you to consider that in the past, God spoke through prophets to the fathers. That's how God delivered His message. And we've been studying the prophets in our Sunday morning class. We see that that's what God does, is that God would speak to the prophets. And the prophets would be the mouthpiece of God. And declare, here's the Word of God. Thus says the Lord, all the prophets would say. The writer of Hebrews says in the past, that's what God did. And the information came then in pieces. At various times and in various ways and all kinds of pieces and portions. Here's God's Word as it was delivered piece by piece, prophet by prophet, at different times, in different years. As you study through like Ezekiel and you'll get this day and you go, okay, what year was that? Well, okay, here's 585, here's 587. Different times, different ways, different people with different pieces of information. But now, He's spoken through a son. And it is the definitive, full, and final message from God. The contrast is tremendous, and the contrast is sharp. Twofold strong contrasts, although there are many contrasts, but I think there are two bold contrasts that are being declared. First, you understand in the past, it was in portions and pieces. And now it is this great revelation once for all. But the other big contrast is, in the past, it was messengers. And now it's a son. Now it's a son. And that's why I read a translation that uses a son rather than his son. Because the point is not to speak to the deity of this figure yet, but to contrast You had messengers and prophets before. And now you have somebody who's of a far better relationship. You have a son who is now spoken, not the messengers. And the messenger speaking was exciting and awesome as it was. Here is a prophet containing the very words of God coming to the people and saying, here's what God says. And as great as that was to hear a message from God through a prophet, he says, you know what, in these days... We have better than messengers. We have better than in portions and pieces and many times and many ways. But we have a singular, full, once for all message that was not brought by simply a messenger, but from the Son Himself. You'll notice it also says this happened in these last days. For us, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We read last days and we go, well, wasn't this book almost 2,000 years ago and they were calling it the last days then? And 
how can that be the last days? And here we are in the last days. And we look at it in this linear timeline as if counting off the years is what indicates what's the last days and what's not. We look back at that and go, that would be the early days. And maybe we're out here in the last days. But the last days had a very different idea. You have to think about the world operating in God's economy with basically two shifts in it. The first shift is all about the promises of God. Here is what God is going to do. Here are all my promises. Here's what I'm going to accomplish one day. Great things are going to come. And the fulfillment of those things, most notably the arrival of the Messiah and His kingdom and all the events that surround that, is the second shift. Everything was pointing to that moment. So you don't live in the days of the promises being given. You live in the last days where you're watching it all being fulfilled before your very eyes. That's why these are the last days. There's no indicator of tomorrow the Lord's going to come and it's all going to be over and done. That's not what it's getting at. It's a getting out of you're no longer in the days of promises looking forward with hope to things to happen. It's all now happening now. Messiah has come. Promises are now being fulfilled. New promises are not being given. We're just watching promises fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled as Jesus reigns. And that brings us then to something so powerful. Middle of verse 2. He's spoken to us in these days by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Many important declarations about the son Two to start with in verse two. Number one, he is the heir of all things. This is a a monumental statement. Sometimes we wonder, why is Jesus called the Son? It's a very confusing term to us. We listen to the idea of Son and we go, well, did God have children? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And then you have religions that go, well, Son means He's a lesser God or He's a created God or a demigod or something like that. And He's not full-blown God because it says He's Son or firstborn Son. And that's missing the idea. That again is importing 21st century usage into the way people thought back then. If you are the firstborn Son, you possessed... So many privileges and so many rights. It was as good as being the father. In fact, you even see that with kings who put their son on the throne and go off and wander and do things. And the son is acting like king because he's as good as king. That's fine. The idea of being a firstborn son and heir of all things is a declaration of his position, a declaration of the inheritance and of the rights and the privileges that he possesses. It is an expression in which it is trying to show a distinction of the person while at the same time saying he's God in every way. You didn't just walk around and say, well, he's God, he's God, he's God. We'd all get confused. Well, which God are we talking about? He's the son. He's different. Well, does that mean he's less? No. No, no. Like imagery, like a firstborn son. Equal rights, privileges, position, equal in every way. 
That's why that kind of terminology is used. And that's what's being expressed right here. What is his inheritance according to verse 2? It says he appointed him the heir of what? All things. Okay, who's in charge of all things? God. (laughs) So who's this Jesus? There you go. (laughs) God. He's appointed the heir of all things. This is that sonship idea of being equal in every way. All things are under Him. The inheritance, everything, all of creation belongs to Him. And if that were not enough, look at the end of verse 2. It just simply says, And through whom He also made the universe. And what that means then is that there is no part of the creation that is not under the control of God. And in particular, there's no part of the creation that's not under control of the Son. He is the heir of all things, and all things were made through Him. He made it, and it was made for Him. There is not a greater purpose statement than that right there. All things were made by Him and for Him. The gravity of that, I think, is it's hard to completely grasp. Everything that exists, including us, was made by Him. And it was made for Him. Now, if you make something and you make it for you, What does that mean about the object that you have? (laughs) You made it, and it's yours, and you made it for your own purpose and pleasure. You can do with whatever you want. Well, what did He make? All things. And why were all things made? For Him. So who's in control? He is. Which explains why... We get so dissatisfied and so frustrated with life. Because what do we live life for? Everything else but God. We're going to find our satisfaction in our career. We're going to find satisfaction in wealth and possessions, comfort, ease, hobbies, family, fill in the blank, whatever it is we think you were going to have. The reason why we're not satisfied is we're misunderstanding why we're here. Our purpose is not career, family, wealth, possessions, hobbies, whatever it is. Our purpose is very clear. You were made by Him and for Him. That's why you're here. And if that's not the life purpose, you're going to be dissatisfied. Always. Because you're not living the purpose. You don't understand why you're called. You don't know why you're here. And that's why this opening is so strong. In the past, different ways, God revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself through the Son. And through the Son, He's the heir of all things. He controls all of it. You belong to Him. And that should change then everything about how we look at ourselves. It changes everything about what this life means. It changes what I will do today because I'm made for Him and He controls me. He made me and the only reason I exist is for Him. 
and for his good pleasure. This is what the book of Ephesians says, amongst other books. We exist for him. And the writer of Hebrews is making it very concise and speaking about who the Son is. Not only that, look at verse 3. The Son is the irradiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His very being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. These are amazing statements. He is the radiance of God's glory. When you are looking for the glory of God, if you look at Jesus, you'll see the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When you see Jesus, all you are seeing is God's glory. You are seeing how magnificent He is. You're seeing His splendor. You're seeing His might and majesty. That's who He is. He is the very radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Here's this idea that He is exactly a picture of God Himself. Which is why Jesus said, Whoever has seen Me has seen whom? The Father, because He's the exact imprint of His nature. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is God. But then listen to what that ends with. And He sustains the world, the universe, by His powerful Word. Please just think about that idea for a minute. That just said... The world continues to spin because Jesus says so. He sustains the universe by His powerful Word. It is by His Word that this whole universe was created and it's by His own Word that it continues to be this way. That it continues to spin. Things only go on because Jesus says so. Which, by the way, would that not give the Christian confidence that we not jump out the window at the news? Because the only reason the world continues is because God says so. Nothing's getting out of control before God. He's letting it go how He's going to let it go. He sustains it. By His powerful Word. In fact, you can make that an apologetics argument. That means if there's anything in creation, there must be God. Because the only way it exists is by His very words. It can't continue on unless He says so. He sustains it. He upholds it. It continues because He says so. That's power. That is crazy power to think about. Kind of, you know, head explodes. Whoa. The only reason it goes on is because He says so. He says today, it will be today, it will continue on, and thus it does. The power of the Son, all things made by Him and through Him, and only continues because He says so. The power of the Son, which makes the ending of this paragraph stunning. Verse end of verse three. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I wish we could stay here for another hour and I would do sermon two. I won't. The challenge of Sunday morning versus Sunday night. I really want to do this throughout the years on Sunday morning. 
for your own study is to run down this road. What you are going to see is Psalm 110 explode throughout this chapter of the declaration of Jesus as high priest and king. You are hearing of his kingship all throughout those first couple of verses. He made all things. He's the king. He's in charge. It's all for him. And then the high priestly image suddenly arrives. And after making purification for sins, he sat down. And the idea of sitting down is startling because it indicates he did everything. It is completed. It is finished. It is done. Priests under the law of Moses, when they were in service, they did not sit down. There were things to do. They go and go and go. When you study the tabernacle, how many chairs were put in there? No, you go, you go, you go. Keep the bread moving. Keep the lamps burning. Keep the fires going. Don't let it go out. Jesus arrives, does His work, and sits down. It's over. And what is, I think, particularly startling to think about this statement in verse 3. And he makes purification for sins. A couple of big ideas with that. That Jesus did that before we even came into existence. I think that's a startling idea. Before we were born, before we exist, we're rolling back 1980 some years. Jesus made purification for sins. Once for all time. Knowing that there would be millions upon billions of people after him. Who would need forgiveness of sins. Who would need purification. That Jesus did not merely purify sins for all the millions and billions of people that existed before He came, which is staggering enough for the thousands of years of recorded history that we have for all of those who sinned and fell short of the glory of God. But then all for those who go forward, all future sins would be dealt with. That we don't have to await a day. Okay, it's been 2,000 years. Maybe Jesus will come back and make purification for all of our sins that we've committed since 30 AD. He made purification for sins and He sat down. It's over. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. This is the big idea. You were just reading in these first two verses how magnificent Jesus is. He is the Son. All things were made by Him and for Him. He is the heir of all things. And with all of that might, and with all of that power, and with all of that splendor, He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his very nature. What 
does he do with all of that might and all of that power, especially for a creation that was made for him and through him? What do you do with things that don't work the way they ought? What do you do with them? You can't get it to ever work right. And even if you made it, you made it, you go, this thing isn't working right. What do you do with it? You throw that thing away and go, we need to start again. It's not working right. With all that might and with all that power and with all that splendor, with all things made for him, he takes that power and makes purification for sins. That is absolutely stunning. Because he should just wad us up like a piece of paper. It ain't working the way it's supposed to. I made it, and I made it for my purpose. And with all of that power, and with all of that might, he makes purification for future sins. He knew you and I were coming, and he knew you and I would be royal disasters. And so one time he makes purification for sins and sits down at the right hand. This is to give us hope. Your sins are purified. Your sins have been dealt with. The big message that is coming out of this introduction to the book of Hebrews. God has spoken. It is decisive. It is final. It is in His Son. He is glorious. He fulfills all of God's promises. And He made purification for sins, knowing that you were going to sin. He knew that you would fail. He knew that all of us would fall short of the glory of God. So don't give up. Because He made you. And He wants you to be with Him. Don't give up. Look at what He's done. He knew that you would fall short. That's why He came and made purification for sins. Don't give up. We look at the world and go, we should just get rid of this world. It's a mess. He says, I'm sustaining it by my very words and I'm keeping it going. Why? Because somehow, some way, as terrible and as evil and sinful and selfish as we and the rest of the world can be, God loves these people. And He continues it all so that you won't give up. That God has erased every obstacle. So that you could be with Him. Jesus solved every problem. Jesus took out everything that is in the path. And when I think about quitting, when I think about discouragement, when I think about wanting to say, I can't do this anymore, you all know one of the big obstacles that I stare at? My sins are too much. 
too big. They're too great. I'm unworthy. This can't be right. I can't do this. I'm a disaster. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. That's why I came. That's why with all my might and all my power and all my splendor and all my majesty, I made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Because He wants you to be with Him. Do not give up. Do not lose heart. Continue the race. Continue the journey that is set before you. Jesus wants you with Him. And He has made a way possible for you to be with Him. And He knows you're in sin. He knows you've fallen short. Where in the Scriptures does it ever deny that truth? We're the ones that deny that. I'm pretty good. God goes, no, you're not. (laughs) You're really not. I'm making you clean. I'm making you whole. You're not making yourself whole. I'm transforming you. But you've got to give your life to me. You've got to be the clay. and Let God be the potter. Trust Him in faith. Let Him change your life. To follow Him and serve Him with all of your heart. Are you ready to do that this morning? You ready to come to Jesus? What grace that we see in the powerful Son. Once for all sacrifice. So that we can live. Can we help you in that? If you're not following Jesus, we want to encourage you today to follow Jesus before it's too late. Turn away from sins. You're not going to be perfect. You can't be. But give your life to the Lord. Put your trust in Him. Follow Him with all your heart. Serve Him. Turn away from life of sin. Confess Him to be the Master and Lord of your life. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Showing an act of submission toward Him. If you've done that, but you've fallen back into sin, perhaps your faith is shaken. The writer of Hebrews is going to say, resoundingly strongly, don't give up. You need to see Jesus. You need to see Him in all of His might and splendor and majesty. And see what He's done so that you will not lose heart. And don't give up. Can we help you? Why don't you come while we stand to where we sing?